Well, if you grew up in the homeschool world, you might be familiar with a famous novel, uh, The Widow's Might. The Widow's Might, it's also a story, a book that gave rise to uh, this, uh, this fictional character, John Moore and Cameron Cavillo, two friends who are aspiring to be filmmakers. They want to make movies. They have dreams of winning prestigious America Viewfinder Film Festival. However, there's a story that leads this uh, ambitious um, youngsters to an elderly widow who has a property. She's facing losing her home because ultimately she doesn't have money to afford living there to the outrageous property taxes in her area. And she's battling the government to save her home. And at this point, these young fellows start to fundraise through their movie to actually help her, and they give the title of the movie The Widow's Might. And that, in many ways, is how we should call Ruth chapter 1 here. Ruth chapter 1 as you recall, last week we went to Haggai, minor prophet, and I thought, let's stick to the Old Testament. And so we will start now a series on the book of Ruth. Ruth is a small book, and uh, it wouldn't take us uh, too many Sundays, but uh, four chapters there. It takes place in an interesting time in the history of Israel. It is the time the book right next to it, the, the page right to your left, as you look at the book of Ruth, is Judges. In the midst of the book of Judges, when, you know, Judges, everyone was doing what was right according to their own eyes. The expected order of law had been overturned by anarchy, relativism, homosexuality, God's word is no longer the standard in the nation that once used to be the land of Israel. And in light of all this, on the heel of this horrendous chapter in the history of Israel, here comes a foreign woman, Ruth. She's an outsider. She's not even member of the people of Israel. She's a nobody. She's actually a Moabite, of all things. But despite of all her pedigree, she does not do what is right in her own eyes, like Israel. And here we have this wonderful story of redemption through the book of Ruth. Now, we don't know who wrote this book of Ruth. Some say and speculate that it might be Samuel. And that's why your Bible, you have it right after Judges and before the first book of Samuel. But again, it's describing to us, it is interesting that it comes right on the heel of Judges because it describes us a period of history where chaos is reigning. And all this makes the story even more remarkable. But because God is absent from this book, he is never mentioned by name, yet he's always active sovereignly behind the scene during the entire story. Similar to the book of Esther in some ways. And in this first chapter, sets up the whole problem 
of the story of Ruth. That the book has to solve the problem that you have right there for us in chapter 1. To better understand the tragedy and the resolution of this story, however, we must keep into account widows in ancient cultures. What was the problem with widows in ancient culture is that we live in a society where it's no longer the case that, you know, you can be a single man and, you know, still get along and get a job and things like that. But in the old world, it was a disaster. In the ancient times, families were supposed to provide through the sons. The sons that you bring into the world were the essential future for the elderly. There was no older people's home. And if that was not the case, there was no son. Then there was this strange law that you find in the Old Testament that the brother of the person who died needed to produce a son who would take care of his mother who will no longer be a widow. Matthew 22, in fact, you come to the New Testament. Chapter 22, verse 24 mentions such law as the Pharisees are coming to Jesus with a specific marriage case. And again, the names and characters in our stories are supposed to actually be more than a name. Behind the name is a, it's a principle. It's a type. So don't get stuck in the fact that this is their birth name because the name of these characters, like in Pilgrim Progress, you ever read Pilgrim Progress? Every character has a specific um, name, and the name is supposed to convey uh, a, a representing a quality of the character. And so Luther, Ruth li literally means friendship, companion. She's a companion, a female friend. It's almost like we are all players and actors in the stage of this life. And now we see which player are playing out. The first key word that you see in our text in chapter 1 is return. Return, return. Twelve times. Twelve times this word is repeated here. Not only to a return to the land of promise, but also a returning to the Lord, which was the problem of judges. Where again, there is a backsliding under the judges. And then the, you have, again, some uh, tragedies that take place. We have death all throughout this chapter, right? And so what we, he we hear here, the problem of chapter 1 is this. That redemption is needed when the line between God, yourself, other people around you, even our bitter selves, when those lines are broken, we need redemption from God. That is the problem that chapter 1 sets out and the whole book to solve. This problem of redemption needed. Redemption is needed, look, first of all, in verses 1 through 5. Redemption is needed when death comes into the family. There is a threat here to the promise of God that God had given the, 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 the promise of a promised land... To Israel, verses 1 and 2 speaks of the days of the judges, once again. This statement is the beginning of the, uh, the fact that the, this statement comes right there in verse 1. It's a striking thing, friends. Because 
Judges are describing to you a society that is morally corrupt. A dark backdrop against Ruth. An example that shines in a sharp and positive contrast. Particularly the ending of Judges. You just flip a few pages. Judges 19 describes for us what? Sodom and Gomorrah coming to the Bible Belt. That the tribes of Benjamin in chapter 19 had become Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible Belt had become even a foreigner who is Ruth, is not part of the supposed people of God, lets her light shine in contrast with everything you see in Judges. All her character qualities are what is missing in the supposed nominal Christians, Israelites of the day. There was a famine. Verse 1 tells us there was a famine. Food shortage. Which caused people in ancient times to, have a, to abandon the area for survival. Famine, friends, was a clear sign of God's judgment. And indeed we saw in Judges that the apostasies of Israel had brought those judgments, curses of Leviticus and Deuteronomy to fruition in the people of Israel. And we are told that there is a man from Bethlehem. And literally, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. But there is a famine, a famine in the house of bread. There is almost an empty bread basket, Bethlehem. And his intention was not necessarily, again, to stay there. He has to leave because now it has become a house of bitterness, as we'll see later uh, within the words of Naomi. So he goes to Moab. He wants, his intention is not necessarily to stay in Moab, but he goes to the country of Moab. We know that through our Genesis studies in the Sunday school, we see Abraham who goes by faith in the promised land. However, here we have Elimelech who is in unbelief under a famine, goes to Moab. Just like Abraham to go to Egypt during the famine. Similar threat to the promise of God. And remember, Moab is the enemy of Israel. Moab is born out of the incestuous relations of Lot's daughters. So the Moabite and Lot, in one sense, represents that bad um, enemy of Israel, the Moabites. The, the Moabites were very pagan. They were devoted to false, cruel, child-sacrificing god Chemosh, who required children to be thrown into the altar. It's a fish god, ridiculous fish god. It is described for us in 1 Kings 11, 7 as the abomination of Moab. It was a terrible pagan idolatry. So this must have been a hard decision for uh, sons of Israel to actually take his land, take his family, to go beyond the Dead Sea, beyond Edom, there on the other side of the Dead Sea where apparently under the famine maybe moisture through the Dead Sea was better, we don't know. And there was better rain providing crop during the famine. But the fact that Moab is productive and Bethlehem, the also bread, is in a famine is nothing other than the judgment of God. Together he goes with his wife, our text says, with his wife and sons. And all seems well here. These three men to take care of her. She's safe. 
There she goes. But she's moving away from the promised land. And it's, again, not a new thing, isn't it? We saw Abraham going away from the land of promise. Or Jacob going away from the land of promise to Egypt in the midst of the famine. And such famines are a constant threat to the promise of God that he said he was going to give the land of promise. Yet, even in the midst of such things, as we see, God proves that he has not abandoned his people. So the decision, however, of Elimelech, which literally Elimelech means God is my king, or God is king, but under, his, under the judges, you remember, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right. And so Elimelech's decision certainly did not seem led by God being the king of his situation. He was perhaps led by lack of faith in God to fulfill his covenant in the land of promise. Yet he was also driven by necessity to provide for his family. Yet he is intended, again, as a move away from blessing. Move away from blessing. He goes, wife Naomi and his two sons, Malon, Kilion, which, again, remember what I told you, a pilgrim progress. Malon means weak. Kilion means frail. They stand for sickness, death, and Perhaps they gave those names for their poor health in the midst of famine, which led them to seek a job in Moab, whatever was the reason. And remember the rates of infant mortality back then were very high. We are told they were from Ephraim, Ephrathite. So they go away from Ephraim, they cross the Jordan, they pass through the tribes east of it, Gad, Reuben, and all the way to Moab, and they remain there. And that's... That's about the tragedy to begin. Because, you see, we all are under a journey in this life. And we are leading our family somewhere. And uh, Elimelech, Malon, Kilion, we're all in this journey. All of us are defined by choices we have to make or we have made or that life has made upon us. Even right now in our nations, I mean, there's a great resettling. So you see a lot of people, for example, from California coming to Tennessee. And if we're not careful, we can go through this season carelessly and just do what's best in our own eyes. And that's what this family man is doing. Perhaps driven by the need of a better job or more money, you actually move away further and further away from God in a spiritual wilderness, contrary to God's revealed will. It's like going to Las Vegas, New York. Sounds like a good place to raise a godly family, Sunday. No, not really. And that's why, because of that, because of those bad decisions, he and his family suffer. Our Christianity has to have a life impact to the decisions we make. Otherwise, we have a problem. And the path here is supposed to be of repentance and faith. The path of redemption that ultimately is created through these bad choices. Either we trust the Lord to provide for our need and to lead us in the better path, even if it's uneasy, and realize that we need the church, that we cannot live in a wilderness on our own. So this, this for us is a, a call to look at which path are we going to choose. That we need to be around people that will help us to follow God. We need to be around realizing that no man is an island. That I cannot just, oh, there's a better job here. I'm going to go there, but there's no church. And then I'm going to be in a wilderness for years. 
This is why it remains essential for us, even as husbands and fathers, and speaking especially as leaders, to consider where we are leading our family. In this great reset, we could say, I mean, that's one of the reasons me and my wife decided to come over here, because I'm telling you, should I stay in Washington, D.C.? I mean, that's definitely not. There are long-term goals and consequences. And again, this, this man, Elimelech, has really not understood those long-term consequences, even for his children. Why? Because a text continues, verse 3 to 5, there's a threat not just to the promised land, but to the posterity. Death comes to the family, remember. Elimelech dies. First the father dies. Death is again as a, is perceived as here as a sign of judgment by Naomi for leaving the land of promise, but still she has two sons at least. But following the, the, the tragedy, we, we hear that these sons took two women who are Moabites. Orpha and Ruth. Orpha literally means turned one's back. That's exactly what she was doing in the story. See, that's like Pilgrim Progress. Every character has a meaning. She was double-minded. Technically went against God's law. But again, you don't marry foreign women. Deuteronomy 23.3 said, No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. Because children of Moabites cannot participate uh, because of their, their enemy with Israel, uh, their pagan religion. And the Moabites were not Canaanites, which was the main prohibition of Deuteronomy. It was still problematic to have such union. And it, it wasn't just a racial, it was religious, that Moabites were pagan. And if you marry a person who is not a believer, you will turn and your children will turn to those false gods. That's why marriage with unbelievers brings syncretism and gradual apostasy in the next generations. And Ruth, again, however, it's an exception. She's a proselyte, proselyte to God of Israel, as we shall see in coming weeks. And so she proves she's very different, that redemption is possible for those who turn to Christ in faith and repentance. And so after 10 years, a long time after the famine, things get from bad to worse for Naomi. Even her sons die. Not only her husband. We don't know the circumstance of the death. We know that they were probably poor of health. But surely the sense is that this family is in disarray. You now have three widows. With no mean to sustain themselves in the ancient society without a husband. And so they left the land of Israel. And they married foreign wives. They perished themselves. And in this tragedy, here you have Naomi. Left, bereaved, alone, separated. Uh, the text says she was left or survived her sons. She was the remnant, we could say, that will really re re return to the promised land without sons and without a husband. It was all but a total annihilation of the family that sought refuge in a foreign land, Moab. Can you imagine her pain? She's lost everything. Famine, death of a husband, children. And it's, it's not like today. Women back then without a provision of a man in ancient cultures had no more means to support themselves. This is an impossible financial situation. So you see how our estrangement from God and personal tragedies point 
to our need of redemption. You see that? How should we respond to losses, family difficulties? Our human logic cannot help making sense when things go from bad for worse to the point that we are barely seeking to survive and seemingly through no fault of our own. But as the hymn says, it is well with our soul. Even if I lose everything, I mean, we know that it's a hard thing. I mean, can you imagine what the pastor in Nashville felt when both his wife and kid died through that shooting few months ago? Our sufferings are part, however, of a greater plan of the Almighty. And that's what we see here in a complex universe that we cannot understand. We live under the fall. Our void can only be filled by one a relationship with another one from Bethlehem. The one who will come. The one who will be in the line of, we'll see later in coming chapters of Ruth. And Jesus Christ, we are here called to reflect on the fact that first God gave, gave him, himself takes particular care in protecting those who are weak, we will see, vulnerable, no matter who we are. Why do you think he called Elijah in the midst of another famine to go and help a widow of Zarepta in a foreign land. And so this is the care of God for the needy. And so we should reflect that as we bear each other's burdens, we got plenty of widows in our midst. We should pray for them, help them all that we can. And I think I am encouraged by all the way that this church is already acting on that way. But people are physically, emotionally, financially vulnerable, hardly with any resources. God has a special heart for those people. But again, there, notice also before we move on that there's long-term costs for our disobedience. Long-term costs when we, the result of bad decisions can be disastrous for us and for our family. That a man who flees to find life prosperity in a foreign land, then suffers death for himself and his family. Do you see how when a man in the family makes bad decisions, every, everyone in the family suffers? And here Elimelech led his family to this. I mean, if you let your children swim around pagans, don't be surprised how they turn out. You, you give them to secular education. You give them to peers who are, or may, maybe... They go and marry certain type of people. Bad costs, long-term cost of disobedience. This passage also shows us marriage between believer and an unbeliever is extremely problematic. And we can testify, even in our midst, that there are reaching consequences if you partake in a covenant of marriage with someone who do not believe or proves to be an unbeliever. It becomes... A trap. Things like this cannot be undone. And if that is the case, remain faithful wherever you are. And if you're single, I, I encourage you, not, do not marry a person who is unconverted. And if you yourself are unconverted, make it right because you are building your house upon the sand. And if you're in, in a marriage of, of this nature or have been into such problematic union witness through your behavior and protect most of all the children of those who suffer the consequences 
And then let's look at the need of redemption, our second point. When we say goodbye, and this is the goodbye that uh, Naomi feels we need to move on. In verse 6 to 14, we have this uh, uh, departure from Moab. She heard, look at verse 6, that the Lord had visited to His people, Israel. It's almost as if the Lord has examined the condition of Israel after the famine. And she, he, ta he takes note of their struggle. And so now he, br he brings the famine to an end. He brings food back to the house of bread. The same word visited his people. It's the same word that was used of Sarah when she receives a son out of her old age. Or when God remembers the cry of Israel in Exodus in slavery. The Lord visits. The Lord hears and pays attention to his people in need. Despite their sin. He comes down with concern for their need of food and bread. And sends a good harvest. That is the faithfulness of God. That in the midst of the faithlessness of Israel. God intervenes when he sees the affliction of his people. That... So you can entrust your afflictions to Him. And seek Him through providential ordeal happening as you discern God's will. Even in the midst of problematic circumstances. And look at verse 7. She now wants to return to Judah and invites her daughter-in-law to return back to Moab. Now that my sons are gone, what, what connection can I have with you? And she begins to remember all that these wandering years had obscured. And she realizes, I am an Israelite and you guys are not. So return, return back to Moab, to your mother's house. Uh, maybe, again, in this uh, type of society, the mother will, husbands are gone, she will take care of you. And she sends a blessing. May the Lord be kind toward you and shows you the, the loyal love. That word will be very important in this story. May he show kindness toward you. A crucial point in this book, this word show up. We'll, so keep a finger on that word. May the Lord be kind toward you. The commitment and devotion of God to his covenant and to his people. Assisting the needy who are unable to help themselves. That is what is in view here. As you have been good to me, may you go and find rest. Find your, yourself a husband. And so they kiss each other and they weep. It's a tragedy. Tragedy. That they, it's like after, after a car accident and somebody has died and they're saying goodbye. We all, we all know how it feels through sad goodbyes and broken relationship. Which are made worse by the trauma that you just came out of. And the light gets thinner and thinner and no one is left to even weep with. But I am I'm encouraging you not to do what Naomi is doing here. That there is despair that leads you sometime to complete isolation. That you are tempted to withdraw from people in that season. And is a road to nowhere. That might be the first step for a road home to the Lord. Naomi also qualifies her need to distance and so to say goodbye. She says in verse 10, I cannot help you. Turn back. I'm too old to have a husband. And look at what it says right there in verse 10. If I should say I have hope. This is the state of the soul of Naomi. If I should say that I have hope. Which means she's hopeless. It's abs reasoning for absurd. Naomi speaks because she has lost all their hope here. She has lost all of her family. Even if there was a, a hope. Then... 
I would get married and I cannot give you children. I mean, there's no hope for me. I am just a burden to you. I'm an old widow who is unable to provide. And it says, No, my daughters, it grieves me for your sake. It is exceedingly bitter. The bitterness of Naomi here is it's strong, intense. That my life is much too bitter for you to share. I am grieved the more for your distress. I feel sorry for you. That what? That the Lord has punished me. I mean, she's coming to the depth of despair here. She feels that the, the, Lord of, the hand of the Lord is against her. I know you, you guys went through Job in months past. We could say that this is a similar context. That there is a double grief here, uh, intense suffering. I lost my family. Now I say goodbye to my, uh, my daughters-in-law. And it's providential that this is exactly what Orpha will do. She turns back to her land. But we shall see Ruth is different. How, how do we make sense of all this? That our estrangement from people and personal hopelessness in the case of Naomi points to your need of redemption. You need the Lord to redeem that hopelessness. That life sometimes feels like a bitter pill to swallow. That's too, too late to roll back the clock. Then when hard blows come our way, we wonder where is God. It's almost a fatalistic way we may feel He's punish us like Naomi here. And there's no other explanation for why things are going so bad, right? And would we dare to hope in the midst of extremely harsh providences like this? That is the question. That not only we will survive our personal tragedies, but that even despite a present famine for the Word of God, we find God's harvest to come. Let us look at the third point here. Verse 15 to 22 that redemption is needed when home feels lonely. And there's Ruth. There's the shining aspect, the most wonderful thing in this text. Verse 14 all the way to 18. When home feels lonely, you need loyal friends that stick closer than a brother. Should we stay or should we go? That's the question. I mean, Orpha at this time, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going home. And she turns her back, just like her name says. But here you have... This other character, and this stands for us as Psalm 1, the two ways. The way that leads to life and the ways that leads to death. Ruth, which according to her name is sympathy, pity, friendship. Even in our English language, we, we today call ruthless someone who doesn't have whatever Ruth had. That, that's how far she shines. She shows here strong commitment, friendship. As a life companion. And it says our text. Ruth however clung to Naomi. She stuck close. Held on to her ropes. Almost literally. Stick fastening herself to it. It's almost leaving and cleaving. Perhaps holding as she speaks to her. In affection and loyalty. This word is used at time to signify a marriage bond. Which will be the theme of this story later on. As we will see. A sense of strong attachment. Despite the command of her mother-in-law to say, No, go. She insists. And what does she say? Naomi says, Look, your sister has gone to what? To her gods. She, she's assuming that Ruth is still a Moabite in name. And in fact, she's still pagan. And 
referring to the God of Chemosh, this is uh, actually in the singular, which is that, that, that false gods. And you should do the same, Ruth. And now is the answer of Ruth, verse 16 to 17. An opposite attitude to Orpha, which reminds me of never underestimate your first um, impression of people. There was this uh, Gladi Hour Hollywoods, famous missionary to China. The first time she went to the, uh, to the China mission offices, they told her, you're unqualified. And then later on, she uses her life-saving to take a train ticket through Siberia. She ends end up in, in China, saves a group of a hundred orphans through the mountains and goes back and sees the same guy from the mission board back in London. And, and he says, yes, I remember you. I told you you were unqualified. Now here is Ruth. This, this woman, he says here, verse 16, Do not ur- persuade me or urge me to leave you. Almost a saying, do not press me to stop going with you. Don't ask me to leave you. You stop forcing me to go home. You might as well give up trying to change my mind. To return will leave Naomi in an even more vulnerable position. And the following words become an immortal poem that we even use in our marriage uh, sermons. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Which is, I mean, Israel. And ultimately... Your God shall be my God. This is a statement of faith. She does not yet use the, 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 the covenant name Yahweh, but she's still, because she's not a technically Israelite, but she's willing to accept Naomi's God. It's almost saying, your God is already my God. This shows that Ruth here from the start has become a proselyte to the Lord of Israel. And it was a rare thing, by the way, for a foreigner to adopt his Jewish religion. And interesting, we find repeating these words even in later scripture again, to, to show us the loyalty, that it doesn't stop there. Look at that. Where you die, I will die. I mean, this is complete sacrifice. She's invoking an oath on herself, a curse. It says, God do so And more and worse, if anything but death departs me from you. I mean, this is this woman is bold. If she's not faithful, she agrees to be a subject of divine judgment for leaving Naomi. This is a interesting that in this context of curse and perceived punishment from Naomi, here you have Ruth, who instead actually invokes a punishment on herself, as to signify she's she's in this together. That unlike Naomi, she, uh, Naomi is so self-absorbed by her affliction, her despair. Here you have Ruth and is like willing to sacrifice everything for her mother-in-law. It's not a problem for Ruth to die. Give me that bitter cup if you have to. Despite being faithful, she invokes severe repercussions for worse punishment. Willing to sacrifice everything. Till death do us part almost. This is almost, again, a marriage declaration, as we see in the coming weeks. And in verse 18, seeing that her daughter-in-law was determined, then she said nothing more. Thomas Adams once says, Bitter pills will down when made up in love. And that is the beauty of Ruth. That Ruth, in this sense, friends, that the need of redemption is already at work And she's opening, even in this opening chapter, already a type of 
of a redeemer who is the theme of the redeemer we'll see throughout this book is is the central piece of Ruth that we as part of this fallen world reap the punishment for our sin death but then one faithful steps in comes he runs to meet us and invokes a curse upon himself to the point of death on the cross and out of love clings to us protects us provides us with redemption that God through covenant by his own blood pledges never to leave us that is the redemption of Ruth that is opening up here with the need of it, our desperate need. There's an addition to this. Even death cannot separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So do we cling to this promise that Christ holds us in the same way, in this confession? Are we Swearing such unconditional allegiance to Christ, forsaking all except Christ. This is not a one-time act, but a lifelong commitment, friend. Self-sacrificing commitment just like Ruth. Do we keep our vows and promises like Ruth makes those? But she also keeps them as we will see in the coming weeks. Or are we like Ophra, who is kind of double-minded. He has an initial lip service. says, I'm coming, I'm coming with you, Jesus but later you change your mind and go back to the world. And notice also the beauty of this uh, description of a godly woman actually comes in the heel of the book of Proverbs. Because this um, order in your Bible is different than the order that the Hebrew Bible has. The Hebrew Bible has the book of Proverbs right next to Ruth. So that at the end of Proverbs chapter 18 verse 22, he too finds a wife, find a good things and obtain favor from the Lord. But also Proverbs 31, and there comes Ruth. The book of Ruth is an example of that kind of woman. Are you looking for qualities in a woman to marry one day? Or how does it look for you too as a woman to be a godly woman? There you have it. They're right here. The self-sacrificial woman, loyalty, goes of Ruth beyond and above any expectations. She surrenders and self-sacrificially does what is right because of her faith in God. To the point of death. However, again, we now start a journey. Ruth and Naomi start traveling and they come to Bethlehem. And there is the ending of our text. Verses 19 to 20. You have... Uh, Naomi comes back to the hometown and the whole town, our text says in verse 19, is stirred up. It's uh, excited or in, 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 in shock, let's put it this way. It's like entering a village when you haven't been there for years. But also here, look at the question. Is this really Naomi they're asking? Can this be her? They remember about her. But they're delighted to see her, but it seems that she's a different woman. Something is different. And verse 20, it tells us what it is. Verse 20 and 21. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. And that word Mara means bitter, disagreeable. When you take something in your mouth and it tastes bitter, that's how she considered her name. Again, this is a play on names, this whole book, as I told you. It's like Esau weeping bitterly after he had lost the blessing that had gone to Jacob. It's like those bitter waters in the wilderness where Israel complained 
Like the bitterness of Hannah for not being able to have a child and going to the temple in the first book of Samuel. It is a mental state of anguish and despair and distress, distress that this woman has lost her husband, has lost her children, and she is now bitter. Because Naomi, on the other hand, means beautiful, pleasant, lovely. And she's changing her own name to mean that my identity has changed. And usually when the change happened, it used to be positive in the Bible, but here is negative. I am bitter. Why? Because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. In other words, she sees behind all of her affliction, wrongly as we shall see, she sees God. She sees this as a fruit of His punishment over her who has filled her with a lot of bitterness, depriving her of her family. Her lot from God at the present is a bitter blow. Why keep calling me a name that no longer applies to me? My name needs redemption, almost as saying. In fact, God certainly doesn't call that anymore upon me. That's the sad ordeal over Naomi that this story has to solve. But what, why, why, why did she say this bitterness? I went away full, but I came back empty. She came back, she was empty. Without gifts or offerings to show for it. No property. Without family. Dissatisfied by the inability to know why. And this is very ironic. That her perspective is such. But she doesn't know the end of the story. She doesn't know what's coming in the coming weeks. That she's not empty handed. You have. Who is this woman with you? This Ruth. She will prove to be the one reversing. She will reverse the whole plight and her lot, filling her emptiness. So her perspective is obviously inaccurate, but it's because she doesn't see beyond the present. And isn't that how we feel sometimes, isn't it? Later in this, the same story, in chapter 4, you have these women to correct her faulty view in chapter 4. But again, here she, she's saying, the Lord has testified against me. It's almost like the Lord has pronounced judgment and condemnation in a court in, and, and this is over. It's, she's hopeless. She's even giving almost, yeah, at the point of there's no, there's no change for me. This is my condition now. The favor is lost and the providence is almost an accusation toward God that the Almighty has brought calamities upon me. That's the wretchedness of her feeling at this point the despair the depth of it there is not necessarily wrong to voice but again it is wrong if you leave it there that afflictions as thomas fuller says relish sour and bitter even to the palates of the best saints okay we all have moments like this that our estrangement from love and personal bitterness needs the lord to bring redemption in that situation Still the struggle remains. From sweetness to bitterness. Naomi's at the bottom of the barrel. Have you ever felt this way? Everything going wrong? You receive bad news after bad news. You once had a family and now it's gone. Your name must be redeemed. And there's barrenness. Leaving you with an empty tank. Bitter taste in your mouth. 
that you don't understand why God has done this. And even people that you know look at you with shock. They cannot recognize you anymore. This is what's happening, friends. Your entire identity seems to have shifted. And God is not, however, against you. Just because those things happen. It doesn't mean the Lord is punishing you. It doesn't mean that, yes, there is a fruit, as we see, of bad choices. But God is not against you. He's actually voicing your suffering. He's already providing in this case with Ruth. You still voice your concern by faith. Believe that God can fill people who find themselves empty. That we are empty and we need to be filled. That we are bitter and we need to be restored by the Lord. He needs to come. And that's the hope actually that Naomi does not see quite in this chapter. Later on it will come. But the ultimate hope friends in this need of redemption due to the bad choices that you have made, the sins that brought consequences upon your life, it's that ultimately that there's one who drank the bitter cup in your stead. That all the suffering and disappointments and losses and the hurts that you experience because of the sin-cursed world that we live in can be redeemed as we turn to to the true Redeemer, as we see in coming weeks. And we reach out to Him in the midst of our affliction. And He brings us to the end of ourselves, like Naomi here, so that we may embrace Him and be changed and redeemed. So, what do we conclude from this first chapter of, of Ruth? This is just the beginning of this uh, journey for us, but we see here that hope comes to the hopeless. That Naomi is in the midst of death, personal losses, family breakdowns, loss of posterity, and threats to God's promises, sad goodbyes. And on top of that, your inability to do anything about it. And it is there, however, that God's loyalty and love can show up. That He comes and finds us even through the eyes of a stranger, like Ruth. The sweet fruit that can come out of bitter stock. And friends, we need to be empty before we can be filled. And sometimes God has to really bring us to the end. Before we can receive redemption, we must first realize our need of it. And Naomi had to be brought to the end of herself even through those tragedies. Instead of departing and going away into the world and then seeing the fruits and the, that, you, that, you, that you taste out of that sin. The, the dark and evil times of the judges surrounded by tragedies. You experience God's judgment for the mindless way we went off the path into a shipwreck. And yet in the mercy of God, God still cares. There are still those few who follow God with loyalty, commitment to God and to each other. And so friends, as we think about the tragedies of life, we can voice our lament like Naomi. Because at the end of the day, God heard her. In all of her bitterness. Even though she was not. She couldn't see the whole picture. But then you find the loyal love of God. Coming right there into affliction. That God can redeem your family. Can redeem your name. And can.